Section 128 of China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Son of the Exiles. The World's Story, Volume 1. China, Japan, and the Islands of the Pacific. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 128. The First Australian Colonists. By W. H. Lang. In 1768, Captain James Cook was sent to the South Seas in command of an expedition to observe the transit of Venus. After this work had been accomplished, he sailed about and visited the great Southland or Australia. He touched at Botany Bay and tried to win the hearts of the savages. He almost lost his ship and ran into the stream which is still called Endeavour River to repair the damage. After many other adventures, he reached England in safety. The result of this voyage was the colonising of Australia. The following account explains how this came to pass. The Editor This mighty work, the colonisation of Australia, began in a very humble way. Until 1775, you must know that the convicted prisoners in England were transported to North America, where they were employed as labourers by the colonists there. In this year, however, the American War broke out, and in 1783, the treaty was signed granting independence. America could no longer be a dumping ground for our criminals, and the government was looking out for some place to which they could transport this undesirable population. Cook's report of Botany Bay suggested possibilities in this direction, and it was finally agreed to make the experiment on a large scale. Anything was better than a return to the old indiscriminate executions, when a string of prisoners would be hanged before thousands of spectators every Monday morning in London alone. So an expedition was prepared which was to convey a little army of felons across almost unknown seas to the land at the very other side of the world. If you come to think of it, it was a rather grisly undertaking. There were six shiploads of convicts, three vessels full of stores for their use, an armed tender, and His Majesty's frigate Sirius. The whole expedition was under the command of Governor Arthur Philip, a sailor, while the Sirius herself had for her captain one John Hunter. There were in all 620 male and 250 female convicts. A detachment of 208 marines was also to be shipped to keep the convicts in order, and with them 40 of their wives and a few children. What a motley crew they must have been! Some so old that they could not work, some very young. Take them as a whole, no doubt they were a shockingly bad lot. Most of them were both born and educated to crime, a few, perhaps, and God help them, innocent. With this strange company around him, Governor Philip, as commander of the fleet, hoisted his flag on the Sirius, and on the 13th of May, 1787, in the early morning, they weighed anchor from the mother bank in the Isle of Wight. 
even as they sailed a free pardon arrived for two of the prisoners and you can imagine their feelings as they stepped on shore into england on a fine may morning instead of sailing away across the barren seas hopeless of any return to a sterile and in their eyes a hideous land at the very ends of the earth to be eaten perhaps by black savages you may be sure every horrible possibility was magnified many times in the thoughts and talk of those first unwilling passengers to these lands i have often in imagination stood on one of the ships as the fleet sailed away that morning a fresh breeze was blowing down the channel and although it was summer time it was cold and bracing there was a clear cold horizon with sails gleaming white in the morning sun but no smoke as we see it now from steamers plying to and fro what was only just evolving the steam engine at that time you can hear the boatswain's whistle the clank of the capstan as the anchor was weighed the chanty of the men as they hauled on the topsail halyards then each ship fluttered her white wings the water whitened in foam at the bows the land began to drop astern and many had said good-bye to old england for ever and a day you can see too what was going on below before you reach the hatchway you know that there is a seething mass of humanity in the ship's carcass over two hundred men criminals many with a life sentence a collection of the greatest blackguards unhung the ship is beginning to toss and to feel the uneasiness of a brisk passage in the channel many of these passengers have never been to sea before and some are cursing while others are groaning the timbers are creaking and the water is thumping and splashing at the bows as i think of it all somehow i can always see the figure of one man he is in convict dress and is holding on by a hammock peering through the little slit which serves as the only porthole to light and ventilate the space occupied by two hundred men here the hammocks are slung with only a foot and a half between he has a bad face the black hair is close cropped the chin clean shaven but the moustache beard and whiskers are showing blue against his sallow skin he has grey eyes set wide apart a straight nose with delicate nostrils upper lip long and the lower undershot and his teeth are white and strong the hand that steadies him is the hand of a gentleman as he looks at the shore slipping away the eyes for one moment soften and gleam with tears and then with an oath and a hard laugh they relapse into the cruel devil-may-care look tinged with cunning when a warder or parson appears i always see this fellow and wonder who he is one who has had the opportunities and passed them by no doubt the mother who bore him would not know him now let us hope that she may never know his fate as the mind travels ahead i can see him with a dull sulky dazed face taking his place beneath a beam from which a rope is hanging down in the new land to which they are all travelling and soon it is all over a horrid subject but true so away sailed the first settlers and the breeze grew to a favourable gale and they made fair weather of it until in three days they were on the broad atlantic and their escort 
the hyena left them and returned to portsmouth with the news that all was well but so boisterous was it that governor philip could write no dispatches to take home nor could they have transshipped it if he had written the only ill news that the hyena brought was that a mutiny had broken out in the scarborough among the convicts but it had been quelled and the ringleaders the chief of whom was the man whom i have described to you punished they made a comparatively uneventful voyage of it calling it rio and the cape we should think the voyage an insufferably long one now from may the thirteenth to june the third they were between the isle of wight and tenerife at this island they remained a week watering and laying in fresh food and here a miserable man a convict escaped in a small boat but was quickly captured poor devil his back smarted you may be sure for his last throw for liberty up to this time twenty-one convicts and three children had died and we wonder from what cause from june the tenth to august the sixth the fleet was sailing between tenerife and rio during a similar period we could now almost accomplish the voyage from london to melbourne and back they again weighed anchor on september the fourth and had a prosperous and quite rapid passage to the cape of good hope which was reached on october the thirteenth after laying in a stock of provisions and five hundred head of livestock on november the twelfth they once more set sail for thirteen days they made such little headway only two hundred and forty miles that governor philip transshipped from the frigate sirius into the tender supply in order that he might push ahead and make preparations for landing but from this date favourable breezes blew with such force that in forty days the land of new south wales was sighted and on the tenth of january seventeen eighty eight the supply cast anchor in botany bay before three days had passed the remainder of the fleet had arrived and they all anchored within the bay since embarkation at spithead they had lost by death on board the fleet one marine one marine's wife and child thirty-six male four female convicts and five children on landing an epidemic of dysentery broke out and by june the twentieth the total deaths among the convicts had run up to eighty-one since leaving england and there were fifty-two unfit for labour on account of old age and infirmities one wonders how on earth old men like that were sent so far away to found a colony but such as they were here they were at last every ship of the fleet all anchored in botany bay with a wonderfully clean bill of health two hundred and fifty-two days from spithead it was a fine accomplishment in those days and governor philip doubtless slept sound that night when the last cable had rattled out and the last anchor had fallen with a splash into the shallow waters of botany bay botany bay proved a disappointing place to land at what was a fine harbour for cook's little ship was but a poor refuge for a dozen the country round was very bare and barren and looked swampy and unhealthy while the water supply was limited philip however was not a man to sit still the last of his transports had arrived on january the twentieth and by the twenty-second he was off with three boats northward to find some better landing-place 
he had not far to go three leagues along the coast was a boat harbour so marked by captain cook but which the great explorer had not had time to visit he had only seen its entrance from the endeavour's deck while sailing past through the narrow heads with their steep rocks on either hand philip and three boats glided on the forenoon of january the twenty fourth and you know now what he saw a deep winding harbour and innumerable coves all with water enough to hold quite easily the fleet awaiting it in botany bay well wooded shores there were and water for the drawing birds innumerable herbage and flowers it was very beautiful and to one particular cove where the water was deepest and where a little brook ran down philip determined to fetch his fleet and disembark his crews for two days he explored the windings of the harbour and found no spot more favourable than this his first love so he named it sydney cove after the minister viscount sydney and in his dispatch he remarked that here a thousand ships could ride at anchor with ease so was founded and named the town of sydney the eighth largest city of the empire end of section 128 this recording is in the public domain recording by son of the exiles